Okay. We are going to be in 1 John 3 this morning. Pretty sure all of us are familiar with England's royal family. Even if we don't pay much attention. And we all know that there are certain things that come along with being part of that family. For instance, anytime one of them gets married, it's a big deal, right? It's televised nationally on the BBC, which is the British broadcasting uh, thing. And then it's even carried on major networks here in the States uh, and around the world. And when Prince William married Kate Middleton, Almost a billion people tuned in worldwide to that wedding. Needless to say, all the other royal family members show up to the event itself, along with other powerful, wealthy, and high-profile guests. There's a long procession from the family home at Buckingham Palace to Westminster Abbey, where the royal events sort of take place with all the various clergy members wearing their finest robes and uh, it's quite a spectacle, and, and it's what is expected. There are a number of other expectations that accompany royalty. Many of these have to do with uh, their military service or their charity work or, or even the sort of austere wave they all seem to learn and employ when they're waving at folks, right? Just the little wave. Uh, above all, they are expected to represent the royal family all of Britain and the Commonwealth of England. But the interesting thing is that they haven't always done such a great job of that, right? Uh, for example, Prince Charles would have had a good bit of notoriety as a member of the royal family and a successor to the throne as it was. But when he had an affair with a woman who was a duchess, it was quite the scandal. And in spite of his indiscretion, he never ceased to be a prince and part of the royal family. He never lost his inheritance. This, this is how royalty works. Once a member of royalty, always a member of royalty. And that's sort of what we're going to talk about today in a sense. Not English royalty and all its expectations, but the one true royal family of God and everything that sort of comes with that. So follow along with me, if you will, as we read in 1 John 3, beginning in verse 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. And you know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning, and no one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. And whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. 
For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. And no one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. May God bless the reading of his word. Okay, so the first thing we notice is that John was focused on love. He has been the whole time. Uh, and he would continue to be throughout the rest of this book. That's sort of his driving motivation. And here he referred to love in terms of being children of God. Have you ever stopped to think about what it means to be a child of God? about being directly related to the ultimate royalty, the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, about what kind of benefits and expectations might come along with that. Because John is doing two things here by introducing his audience to the idea of being children of God. First, he is restating the reality of who we are as Humans. In Genesis 1.27, we read that God created man in his own image, and in the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. We are, then, first and foremost, created in the image of God. And that's where the story begins. Humanity, walking around in God's image as his image bearers, on the earth. And so John was reminding these believers that they were created in God's image. That's part of what's going on here. And this is something that can be troubling for us, I think. And like them, we live in a time of sort of great chaos and upheaval and change and disorder. And it may even seem to us like we are sort of the marginalized and persecuted, though I don't think we're there yet. Um, but as they lived through such a time, John was reminding these people of who they were as well as what it meant. And I think we could use the same reminder because many of us don't seem to recognize it whether in ourselves or in others. And the second thing is that John used the Greek term techna theo. Techna, which means a child descendant or inhabitant, uh, descendant as in one who inherits, whether land or wealth, and an inhabitant of the land of their predecessors. Land was the major sort of defining factor there. And then theo, of course, is the word for God. So child, descendant, inhabitant of God. In essence, <clears throat> John was saying you are the descendants of God, created in God's image. You inherit and inhabit all that belongs to the Father. So live that way. And don't get pulled away into the lie that it doesn't matter what you do, the lie that the Gnostics were telling. Don't get pulled away into that because it does matter. It does matter what you do and how you live. 
In addition, John used a bit of clever Jewish wordplay here to include the idea that the Gnostics, who were all about secret knowledge, really didn't know anything. In saying that the world didn't know them because it didn't know Jesus, John was using this bit of irony to display the ignorance of the Gnostics, who thought they knew everything. And we might look at that and, and then be tempted to think, well, that we are the ones who know everything. But that's clearly not what John is saying, right? In the very next verse, John again called believers children of God, that repetition that brings emphasis, and then went on to explain that we don't even know what the end product will be. We don't even know what we're becoming entirely. In opposition to the Gnostics who went around claiming that they have all the answers, John was clarifying that Christians do not have all the answers, but that we know and are known by the one who does. This doesn't make us better than anyone else or smarter. It just means as followers of Jesus, we trust that all the mystery and all the things we don't fully understand is still part of something bigger, something that God is working in and through for our good. <clears throat> There's also a sense in which John was making the point that wherever a believer might be in their life, no one is there yet. No one has arrived. Every single one of us is on a journey, and none of us are perfect or have been perfected already. And this is important for us to recognize because it's clear in both our lives and then in the lives of those around us, which means we can be a bit more forgiving in both cases, right? It also means we can lean into the mercy and grace Jesus offers as we work toward unity in this body. And the whole idea is that we are not yet what we will be someday, which means there's still more for us, more change, more growth, more life, more light, more love. As long as we are breathing, there is more for us, which means when we fail, when we stumble, when we reject what God wants for us in a given moment, that's not the end of it. We don't forfeit our salvation or place in God's royal family by making a bad choice here or there. We are still growing. <coughs> Pardon me. Imagine if a toddler was learning to walk and then they fell down only to have their parent kick them out of the house and disown them again. That would be ridiculous. And yet there are Christians who believe that's how God works. That every time they sin, they have to go run down the aisle again and get saved all over again. There are even some church-going folks who have fallen for a way of thinking not terribly different from the Gnostics. A way of understanding what Jesus did as a justification for doing whatever they want. Because all their sins passed present and future are already dealt with, they act as if what they do doesn't really matter. That sin is covered, so it's no big deal. As my professor, Dr. Rarard, always said, the truth is in the tension between two extremes. Sin has been dealt with, that's true, 
but it still matters what we do because we are supposed to be growing into the likeness of Jesus. We are supposed to be walking as he walked. And this is the case John had been making all along. So that when we get to this next part, we need to understand it in this context. In verses 4 through 9, John dove deeper into the issues causing the divergence between the believers and the Gnostics. On one side, he made it clear that those who make a practice of sinning are practicing lawlessness, while on the other side are those who make a practice of righteousness. Two different ways of doing things. And this distinction has caused so much trouble when taken out of context and made to be a, a strict kind of either or. And even though it sounds very black and white, and, and in its own way it sort of is, but it's not quite as harsh as it sounds. Contextually, we know that John had already said in 1 John 1, 9-10, that if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, right? And that if we say we have not sinned, we make God out to be a liar. There's plenty more that John has said along those lines. So we know that when he wrote, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning, no one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him, he definitely wasn't talking about it in an absolute sense like we might like to think. Because that would actually contradict what he already wrote. He undoubtedly was not saying that those who stay in the Jesus camp never sin again. So what was he saying? Well, in the Greek, John used the word poieko, which means to make, manufacture, or construct, uh, to do, or to cause. That's how this word works. In other words, it has to do with what kind of world we are building. What are we constructing with our actions? Anyone who does construction projects knows that they don't get done quickly or in a day or anything like that, uh, right? And then the house, how's it going? Kind of slow, right? Taking a while. Often it takes a really long time to bring any project to completion. And in a way, our lives are basically a long-term building project. And John is simply asking, what are we building? Not in a given moment of weakness that we feel remorse over, but with a lifetime. Over the course of your life as a follower of Jesus, what are you building? What are you constructing? What kind of world are you creating? That's what he's asking. And these same questions apply not just to us personally, but to our congregation and every other congregation, as well as the church on the whole. When we look at the way we think and act, the things we say and do, the legacy we leave in the places where we live, what have we made? When people look at any of us, what do they see? How have we made life better for them? How have we met the needs of those around us? How have we interacted with each other or those who disagree with us or, or those who oppose us? Are we consistently 
building a world of sin and lawlessness, or are we consistently building a world of righteousness? What are we truly devoted to? Now, we might very well be tempted to think that we are in the righteousness camp because we don't break laws and we're not out on the streets selling drugs or our bodies or anything like that. We might look at the fact that we are decent citizens and mistake that for being righteous. But righteousness isn't a matter of being a decent citizen who doesn't sell drugs. It's a matter of the heart, a matter of how we live with and love those around us. And John has been making that clear this entire time. And that's why in verse 10 it's, it's sort of the key because it, it ties this whole idea back to what John had already been saying. Practicing righteousness and building God's kingdom by loving each other is how we know. If we don't love each other, if we refuse to love each other, we are practicing lawlessness. Because according to Jesus, loving God and each other is the whole of the law, right? So how are we doing with that? Because abiding in Christ and living a lifestyle of hating people, those are irreconcilable opposites. Abiding in Christ and consistently neglecting others around us in need, those are irreconcilable opposites. In this way, there really is no middle ground. There's no, well, I just sort of hate my neighbor. Or I, I mind my own business and everyone else should do the same. These might be okay for a decent citizen to think and, and even live that way, but they're not okay for citizens of God's kingdom. John was differentiating between the children of God and the Gnostics, and what he was essentially doing here was drawing on the sort of Jewish understanding of abiding as staying in the camp as opposed to leaving the camp. And so basically, this is just another Jewish reference to the days of wandering during the Exodus period, where every time they stopped, they would set up camp. You were either in the camp or you were outside of the camp. John's point was that no one who chases after a sinful lifestyle like the Gnostics were doing remains in the camp. They're outside the camp by their own choice. They had left. They left the camp and the family of God because, as he said before, they were never really a part of it. Those who stayed in the camp, abiding in the Lord, and walking in the light as he is in the light, loving each other, they were the children of God because they were made. That's how you know. But even if they made bad choices here or there, or stirred up a bit of controversy every now and then, as long as they were consistently building the kingdom by loving those around them, they could be sure that they were children of God, children of righteousness. Now, I hope this is all clear. Like I said earlier, I know it can be a tricky issue if we just sort of read these statements out of context. But in light of how the context shapes these ideas, there are some questions I think we all need to deal with. Do we take sin seriously enough? 
not to an extreme where we are judgmental about everything and constantly denigrate ourselves or others, but does it bother us when we realize we are not living as Jesus lived? Does that bother us? When we are not loving as Jesus loved, does that bother us? Do we hurt when we hurt others? Do we feel remorse? Do we admit our wrong and apologize and make amends? Or do we even notice? Do we even care? Do we have an attitude that other people should just get over it? That they deserve whatever bad things are happening to them because they aren't good people? That they are reaping what they sow while we get God's mercy and grace? If we're honest, this church has a pretty long history, and along the way, things have gone pretty sideways in this regard at different times, which means there are people in this town who have been hurt by people who were in this church at one point or another, and, and maybe more recently than most of us care to recognize or acknowledge, because I've heard about it in my time here. In light of these things, what are we building here? Are we building our own selfish kingdoms? Or are we building the kingdom of God in this place? Are we constructing a better world for the people of our town so that they see our good works and give glory to our Father who is in heaven? As Jesus said in Matthew 5.16. Are we devoted to the Great Commission or are we devoted to ourselves? I ask these questions knowing full well that the world we live in and the way it's consistently bombarding us with every manner of temptation to be just as selfish as we can and, and to live our best lives now. I ask this knowing full well that we have been given a sort of set of blinders by the relative wealth of our culture. Blinders that narrow the way we see God's kingdom into a matter of what it means for us. After all, haven't many of us grown up in or been a part of churches where we were told that it's all about us? And maybe not in those exact words. But I know I've been told that if I was the only person on the planet, Jesus would still come and die for me. I'm not saying that isn't necessarily true. But the idea of who Jesus is and who we are that that produces, it's not very biblical. In fact, it goes against everything we see in the New Testament. And most specifically, what we see in the new church in Acts 2, 42-47. Here's what it says. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. The Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Now, I've been quoting this since I got here. 
Because we need to recognize the fact that the kingdom of God is not about you and it's not about me either. It's not about our selfish desires or living however we want. It's not about treating some people well because they are like us in some ways or believe like us in terms of religion or politics. It's not about treating other people poorly because they aren't like us or they don't believe like we do. It's not about standing up for our rights as Americans or denying those same rights to others who we don't like or agree with. That's not what the kingdom of God is about. And I could go on and on, but I won't. I'd rather tell a story. So a number of years ago, I was working at a church as an associate pastor, and part of my role was finding ways for our congregation to interact positively with our town. In the course of my time there, a need arose that we were made aware of, and that we as a church, as a community of believers devoted to building the kingdom of God, were capable of doing something about. And I talked to the lead pastor first, and he's all for it. And then I talked even with our local director of missions to see if our association might want to be involved, and he was in favor of it as well. So I presented it to the church, and they called a business meeting, as they do, to discuss the matter, and after a good long set of questions, and then no small amount of griping about all kinds of things that could go wrong, they completely balked at the idea and didn't do it. As of today, I'm still aware of what's going on with that church. That church has little to no real impact on their community. They are gathering place simply for those who have decided that isolating themselves and maintaining the status quo is more important than actually living like Jesus and loving their neighbors and doing things outside of their little box. Now, I'm not okay with that. And I really don't believe y'all are. I think we all want to be the kind of church that is vital and important in our community. The kind of church that matters to this town because we are making life better for those who live here. And I think we all believe what I'm, what I'm saying here because that's what church is supposed to be about. That's what the Great Commission calls us to, and it's even our church's own statement of purpose hanging right out there on the entryway. According to John, if we want to know who the children of God are, if we want to know whether or not we are part of the royal family of God, the answer is in verse 10 that we looked at. This is what he says, by this it is evident who are the children of God. And who are the children of the devil? Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. If we want to know where we stand, we need only look at what we are doing. What are we building? What are we constructing here? We may not be practicing lawlessness by being criminals, but are we building the kingdom? Are we loving the people of our town? If not, we are in fact practicing lawlessness because we are living for ourselves. We're building our own thing, maybe even as a congregation. And that is dangerous stuff. Because ultimately, if we persist in that, if that's all we're doing, 
then we're outside the camp. And we're not children of God after all. We're just religious. And I'm convinced that's not who we are or who we want to be. I'm convinced we are children of God who want to build something good here for his sake. Something that outlasts us. Something that will allow people to know his love and mercy and grace. And I'm convinced of this because it was pretty much the first sermon that I ever preached here when I came to interview for the role as pastor. I said it that Sunday in August of 2013, and, and this congregation as a whole voted unanimously to bring me and my family here, which means to me, this is what we all agreed to be about. And I know we have had some turnover since then, we've hit some bumps along the way, but I believe we still have this same heart for the things of God, that we still want to build God's kingdom. So are we willing to make the sacrifices and do the work and love each other and our neighbors? Are we willing to give ourselves over to the Holy Spirit so that our darkness can be flushed out and we can be made more like Jesus? Are we ready to live like the royalty we are? With all the benefits and expectations and responsibilities that come along with being children of God? Or are we more interested in stirring up controversy? Where is the focus? John called on the believers of his time to live certain kinds of lives, and even though we don't live in that time, the principles he set down still apply for us. We just need to recognize who we are and what that means so that we can live into it for the glory of God. Will you pray with me?